welcome back, listeners, to another episode of Ag Watchers. Uh, we've got a very outspoken person as a, as a guest today. Anyone who's on Twitter or reads the newspapers will know who she is. Gillian uh, Fell, probably one of the one of the most remote farmers in Australia. Gillian? Yeah, we're out there. We're we're right near the centre. And probably one of the most that probably makes you one of the most remote farmers in the world, potentially. Yeah, I guess I guess so. But we do have internet access, and you know, Bitumen Road, seventy-five kilometres away. So compared to, compared to some countries, I think we're doing not too bad. Not, not too um, bad. Yeah, you don't want to you don't want to come over all poor farmer me. Look at me, so terrible when well, there's starving I, people in Africa and all that sort of nonsense. Well, I was about to start complaining about my internet. Uh, <laughs> we, won't, we won't go there because uh, that's a technical issue. And I think that might be my fault. So, so Gillian, tell us a little bit about who you are, where you are, where you are, what you do. Right. So I'm what, well, we call ourselves pastoralists because we farm in the pastoral areas of South Australia and we run a beef cattle herd uh, here in the far north of South Australia. So we're just south of the Northern Territory border, um, closer to Alice Springs than we are to Adelaide by about 600 kilometres or so. Um, We've been here 16 years now, moved over from Queensland, which explains uh, a lot of my accent. I, I get a lot of flack from South Australians that I don't round my vowels correctly. And um, it's interesting when I go back and speak to Queenslanders and they're talking like that ah, and really drawing everything out. It's like, oh my God, what is wrong with these people? But uh, <laughs> so yeah, we're a little bit in no man's land here. We, we call ourselves Central Australians, but the Territory don't, doesn't want us and South Australian doesn't know that we exist. So um, yeah, we just sort of make our own way here. Um, it's a family enterprise. It's my husband and I and his, his parents own the pastoral lease and we've got uh, three kids here now aged five, nine and 14. The eldest is at boarding school. So that's a, a bit of a relief. And I do all the teaching myself through School of the Air in Alice Springs. So pupil free day today. Yay, so back into been, it tomorrow. So you've been doing, the, uh, <laughs> you've been doing the, uh, the homeschooling since before it was cool, before it was popular. Yes, we have been doing it. And, and my frustration with all these experts if i can put quote marks around that coming out since the lockdown and the COVID and that sort of stuff you know telling us how distance education should be done and honestly these people have never done distance learning in their lives they've just read about it in a book or gone to university and and given their opinion on something and they didn't ask the experts nobody asked the schools of distance education that we had across australia and have had for 60 odd years no one said, hey, how do you guys do this? You know, you seem to be getting a good handle on it. But um, no, people have a bit of an issue looking outside their own backyard sometimes, I think. Yeah, that's um, something I noticed. Um, and my partner's actually in tertiary education, teaching the teachers. And when that whole COVID thing was breaking within Victoria and, and elsewhere, that first time around, um, and there was a lot of urban people that all of a sudden had to work from home and then also teach their kids. I think you were about a day or so behind uh, that whole event and then you had something on social media like a bit of a, and uh, it was a, a thread wasn't it explaining how you do it. It's not, you know, like it's not that complex of doing it and, and people have been doing it for many, many years. And um, I showed it to, to my partner and she had a good look and said, what, what a great resource, like just to have that there to say, these are, these are, you know, cut right through to the basics and this is what you need to be able to do and know. So 
um, exactly what you're saying there in terms of going to the, those that have been doing it for, for ages and, um, and letting the rest of the rest of Australia know how it's done. Um, so it was really good. But um, speaking of um, internet-based kind of threads and I guess to a degree rants, there was another more recent one that caught our attention. That's partially why you're here. Did Andrew, do you want to? Um, yeah, I think it came out when probably last week, week before last. Really good long long thread about the drought report. Yes, the drought report. At least we're calling it drought now and not dry times. So for a long time in South Australia, they they didn't believe that they had drought here because they're so special, and um, we were just forced into calling it dry times because. As you know, there's a, a, a head of state agreement about, you know, how they're going to manage drought. And so South Australia was adhering to that down to the letter. So we've got no subsidies on freight, um, no special allowances made for us. We, meanwhile, Queensland and New South Wales are getting freight subsidies hand over fist. And, you know, you can't blame their producers. They're trying to get the best deal they can. For, for, for a farm like yours, freight would be a huge thing. Freight is everything even when hay prices were, were still reasonably good they've come back well at the moment but um we would always pay more in freight than the cost of the hay um and you know being a small operation we can't afford to invest in our own prime mover and road train and, and do it ourselves because who's going to drive it mm -hmm. uh, someone needs to be here to do the work and it's a fairly specialist skill driving a road train so yeah it's um Freight's a big thing, but also it has been proven subsidies don't work because the suppliers just jack the price up. Um, doesn't work with interest subsidies, doesn't work with freight subsidies, but you know there are other mechanisms that can be used. But because of this drought agreement, we're all adhering to. But yeah, then they then we had the drought report. We've got the, the drought and fire flood recovery officer, uh, M Ambassador Shane Stone, um, spending lots of money on, don't know what won't return my calls. I don't know why. Um, <laughs> it's a mystery. <laughs> but yeah, it's, yes, I understand you want to plan for the future. You can't, you know, fight a drought while you're in a drought. I'd have to disagree with that because we've been fighting it for four years now. We've still got breeders and we're still, you know, ticking along. So there are things that can be done to help. But um, just the lack of acknowledgement that not every farming system is created equally. What might work on the East Coast on a farm that's 20 acres, 20,000 acres, if you want to be really generous, is not going to work here where we're 436,000 acres. Um, we've got access to different things. We've got underground water. We've got um, large bodies of mulga, which is called the living haystack for those who uh, want to get right into it. Um, it's a very good cattle fodder. You've got a feed supplement, which we do. Um, and we can keep ticking along. but um, I've, I heard somewhere, and I'm fairly certain it was Scott Morrison that said it, that the, the, the taxpayer of Australia is not going to subsidise farmers' lifestyles anymore. And, oh, my God, if I'd had his phone number at the time when I heard that, he would have copped a mouthful of abuse, <laughs> I can tell you. <laughs> That's a, a, good that point, is... a good point you make there as well, Julian, about the, um, you know, it being a drought-type uh, package. I and mean, what, really what you're alluding to is saying it shouldn't be only when we're in drought that we're looking at this stuff, we should be focusing on the use of water and some of these key infrastructure things. It needs to be an agenda that's there all the time, um, whether it's, you know, a lot of rain or no rain. Um, it's, you know, it's, it's got to be a long-term kind of uh, management prospect and, 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 you know, just seems to only get the attention when it's, um, when, when you see the, 
the terrible footage in, on the news of, of the night is when it kind of becomes to the fore, but it's got to be uh, you know, much more present all the time, I think. And it is, and it's <clears throat> the, all the governments, Labor, Liberal, whatever, whatever stripe or colour you want to describe them as, they have this aversion to investing in infrastructure and, you know, Australia gets called a developed nation all the time. And I would, I would disagree strongly with that we are de a developed nation. We have got untapped resources and areas of this country that can be used for agriculture or other purposes without ruining the environment if there was investment in infrastructure. And it's, you know, and it's not just pastures or farmers missing out on this infrastructure. It's communities and small towns and, and those sorts of things where if you invest in the infrastructure and provide a decent place to live, people will choose to live there because we all know living in a small community, living in an outback town or a country town is a much, for me anyway, much nicer existence than living crammed into a little box in the city where you've got no backyard and, and you know, your kids can't even go out in the street for fear of being run over or snatched or, you know, it's, it's frustration. I can tell you it's very frustrating and, you know, I try not to get too much into politics because I am yet to meet a politician that I have a great deal of affection or even respect for because you have to be a certain type of person to go into politics. And um, I think that's not a very good person, quite frankly. In the reports, like I, I, I read through the report and I thought there was a lot of, I thought there was a lot of interesting terminology and, and expressions used throughout that drought report. I think the one that picks, stood up to me, first of all, was the angels at the kitchen table, which I really thought was quite a almost odd sort of term to use in, in, a, in, a, in a government report. But what was, the, what was the things that stuck out most of all to you in, in, in that report? Yeah, that angels at the kitchen table nonsense, like... Don't get me wrong, the rural financial advisors, they do a great job, um, but they only, they have a very limited scope of what they can do and what they can assist you with. Like, they can um, talk things through and explain things to you, but in terms of offering practical assistance, you know, they're, they're restricted, they can't do that. They're, they're just there to explain it to you, really, and then you still have to go off on your own merry way and, and try and plough through everything on your own. Um, they can advise you if you're eligible for certain things and, and all this sort of stuff. But, mm, yeah, that and um, that this, that, you know, farming is a business, yep. And, um, but, uh, you know, oh, it's been, I've just, it makes me so angry I can't even think. Farming's a business, yep, and um, we shouldn't look to the taxpayer to prop up our businesses, yep, that's fine. But something I think that this COVID-19 has thrown into sharp relief and they had time to look at the drought report before they released it and, and look at it through the, through the scope of, of, of what's happening currently. Food security and chains of supply are enormous. Australia produces more than enough food to, to feed ourselves and a great portion of the world as well. Um, but we don't have the production capability to, to make masses of tin tomatoes or, or whatever, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And, you want to talk about food security in the light of the fact that nothing's coming in or out of the country, then you do have to look at supporting the people who produce the food in a practical sense. You know, it's all really good to have climate ambassadors and let's throw some more money at the bomb to get them to make some more models of stuff about how everything's so terrible. 
Um, they can tell, but at the end they, of the they day, can, they can tell you why it's not raining, but <laughs> it yeah. doesn't make it rain. <laughs> no, and and you know we have all these resources that we can utilise, but we need the infrastructure. And oh well, you know industry can pay for infrastructure. Okay, so we're forced to compete against some of the most heavily subsidised agricultural industries in the world. We can do that. Australia does that. We do it really well. Um, but we don't get the same sort of tax concessions or anything that mining gets. Can't eat rocks. Um, <laughs> you know, you could strip all the, all the subsidies and stuff away from mining and see how profitable that is. But because we're not handing over great amounts of, of money to the government, it's um, they see us as being a very poor substitute for mining. And um, that's very frustrating because we actually produce stuff that you need to live. Yep. And it's fairly consistent as well over the course of time. If, if you forget about droughts, you know, the tax base isn't huge like mining, but the tax base in mining can go huge and then it can fall away quite quickly as well. And you are right. It's probably a much bigger employer as well of, of, of people in, in rural and, and metropolitan areas. So, so yeah, it has been that big focus on, on mining. But and I, I'm, I'm not anti-mining. Mining, mining no, has no. its place. It's a good industry. Um, we've fallen back on working in the mining industry when farming hasn't gone so well. And, and you know, we, we, can, we can do it. We do it quite well. But, um, you know, you can't just focus on one industry to the detriment of all the others. Um, and because for a long time, it's starting to turn the corner now, now that people have realised how clean and stable our production systems are, um, it's starting to turn the corner now, but for a long time, farmers were the devil. We were so terrible. We're so mean to our animals. We're just in it for the money. We're chopping down all the trees and killing all the fish. And you, uh, know. you guys are still doing that, according to the city folk. <laughs> it's, but but I think, like I think you're absolutely right. Like looking at, like this report looks like it was probably written. Um, most of the the sort of a lot of the the appendixes talk about like up until November two thousand nineteen, so that looks like mm. to me when this report was probably written, and I think we do we do live in a new world, this sort of COVID pandemic world where where things are different, and we've we spoke to a lot of food companies over the last year or so, and there has been a lot of concerns around access to supply. You know, they have relied on certain ingredients from the rest of the world because you just can't get it here. Or or if you do get it here, it was substantially too too expensive. So I think it's, we, we've relied on, and I'm talking more from a supply chain point of view, the world's relied on just-in-time management, uh, which is fantastic when it works. But when it breaks down, it's a bit like, any motor you take away one gear and it's it's completely completely buggered but i think that's yeah i think people will be looking at uh at their at their sort of food security another thing as well is that you, you point about um living in country areas like matt and i both live in well we'd probably be considered a city compared to you but we are we are we are a bit out we, we're, yeah, both, we, we're, both, we, we're, we're both outside the lockdown zone that's right. If we go, we have to we have to drive for maybe five or ten minutes before we see another person we're not related to. But um, or at least I do. <laughs> Andrew could just you, know, you you're very urban compared to. I'm, I'm very urban. Us. Yeah, I, I but, can see the countryside from my house though. Mm, 
But I think the, the, the whole COVID dynamic, um, I think it has, it's not just, you know, a lot of people obviously have been working from home uh, through necessity uh, and having to teach their kids at home through necessity, which is something that you're very familiar with already where you're located, um, Julian. But uh, the, um, you know, what Andrew was saying there about the change of um, the, the way that some corporations are looking and, and food um, or con consumers of agricultural products, food manufacturers, are looking at the supply chain and it's, it's becoming not just about the lowest cost, it's about um, that, you know, lack, you know, trying to reduce the volatility or reduce the exposure to these kind of hiccups in your supply chain. But I think from a personal perspective too, I'm wondering whether some of those people that are trapped in those urban settings and are starting to see the value of living um, a bit more remotely or a bit more rurally or, you know, in a, in a um, regional setting rather than um, having to go all into the main centre and all your all your employment, all your opportunities are based in the main centre. Yeah, well, so sorry, Gillian, I'll just jump in. I did see some stats today that in Montana, uh, houses are selling like hotcakes and all the sales have been made from people from Los Angeles and New York and it's they're buying unseen, so just buying off of the internet and buying, you know, basically any property available because people don't want to live in the city. And I think, okay, we've got a lockdown in Melbourne, but we don't have riots on the streets and we don't have hundreds of thousands of people dying. So, but I think in, in America, it's a, it's definitely a sign of people thinking cities aren't safe anymore. And you, to be honest, completely understandable. You know, I lived in Glasgow for a long time and I think I'd be safer there than New York or, or Washington or Portland. But I wonder if it's the same case here. Like, I, I don't see people moving out to really sort of rural areas, but places like Malden, Bendigo, Ballarat, uh, Trentham, you know, where we see it. I, I think more people should move out into the regions. Like, you know, closer into the more urban settings, like closer into your capital cities, Adelaide's a really good example of how you can live regionally but still be within 20, 30 minutes drive. Yeah. of your capital city and have access to everything. Um, you know, it's not just all straw chewing hicks who live out there. There's some uh, really interesting, open-minded, <laughs> you know, intelligent people who still enjoy a decent coffee and nice food. And, you know, and, and it seems the further, the more remote you go, the more understanding and accepting people are. If you turn up and you do your work and you mind your own business, We'll accept anyone. We don't care. We're not interested in religion or race or colour or sexual orientation or anything like that. Just, you know, it's not important to us. What's important is, is the type of person you are inside. It's not important to anything else. And it doesn't take long for you to become part of the community too in those instances. And we've seen that, in fact, with a few of those... Um, yeah, we, 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 Andrew and I are part owners in a pig farm and um, the community up there near Bendigo, you know, obviously relying on some of the Filipino workforce in that capacity because of that, you know, such a, a, a high level experience um, in that area. And it's sometimes a job that some, some Australian, you know, like generational Australian people don't want to do. Um, but there's now, you know, parts of those areas where it's a whole Filipino community that have come across and, and they're very much embraced by that community, um, you know, so they bring the culture and everything else with it. But it's... Um, you're exactly right. It doesn't take long before if you allow yourself to be part of that community, it doesn't matter what um, what your background is or who you are or any of those things, um, they're very, very quick to accept you because you, you just become part of that fabric. What, what we found in the UK, though... Can you imagine? 
we, can we you imagine how boring our food would be if we didn't accept people from other cultures? We'd all be eating like Andrew. It'd be terrible. <laughs> hey, hey. I eat pizza. <laughs> With pineapple on it, probably. Yeah, it's not Andrew, just... Andrew's hoping for, um, for for more people to be accepting of his uh, cuisine choices. Like uh, we were having a chat to, to Margot Andre recently and uh, explaining about his Andrew's love of um, black pudding, um, but um, we couldn't seem to get uh, Margot to. Well, I, I still think my diet is more sustainable because we eat all of it. <laughs> so. That's true. That is true. So I'm, I'm, I won't eat black diet. pudding. The rest of the family does, but I won't touch it. But anyway, at least someone's having a go at it. Anything you don't eat, you just deep fry it and then it tastes good. Once it's, once it's deep fried, it tastes good. <laughs> bit, bit, bit of plastic, deep fry it, she'll be right. Yep. So That's so, my mum's mum's answer is melting cheese on everything. If, it, if dinner last night no. wasn't great, just melt some cheese on top of it and it's good. Deep fry it first and if it's still bad, <laughs> cover it in cheese. So, so Jane, going back to, back to your station, you're, again, we'll say again, you're sort of in the middle of nowhere, pretty much. No, you, said, you said no man's land. Yep. Do you, what's your nearest council? Or what is your council? Oh, we don't have a council. We don't have a council. We get governed, if you could call it that. We get ignored by a government-appointed board that's based in Port Augusta, which is a town about 800 kilometres away. So we don't get to vote for any local representatives. So you so, have a, yeah. so you have administrators then? Essentially, yes. The oh. Outback Communities Authority. So, and even then, because there's a, a smattering of towns across the Outback of South Australia, they're more concerned with those small townships than, uh, than the pastoral community, like individual stations and those sorts of things. Like, unless you're involved in some sort of touristy type thing or, or heavily involved in, in local events like gymkhanas and stuff like that, you basically just get ignored. And for a long time, that sort of suited everyone because, you know, you don't want to be tied up in, in legislative tape and, and deal with bureaucrats and that sort of stuff. But we've reached a point, I think, that we deserve to have elected representation and a voice direct um, that represents the people and what they think and feel, not just what we're told to think and feel by someone who doesn't live here, doesn't know where anything is and, and you know, and the outback of South Australia is a pretty big place. I think it makes up the region that they administer um, makes up three quarters of the state. So <laughs> it's a big area to cover. And what, of course, people are going to slip through the gaps. What do they say? No, no taxation without representation. I'm, mm. sure, I'm sure they still want yes. rates though. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's an interesting thing. A, a lot of that's a, a lot of the pastoralists say, oh yeah, no, we don't want to pay rates and, you know, because then, you know, the, our roads will never be looked after properly. It's like, have you noticed the state of your road now? Like, it's <laughs> it, it's not being done now. Like, the councillor and he can whinge to the CEO and then they can whinge to someone else. It's, at the moment, if you want to complain about something, I have to sit down and write a letter to each individual minister. And I'm sure I've got, like, a, there's, a, there's a list of names up on the wall in Parliament in South Australia, and my name's at the top with a big, like, red line through it. Like, do not accept correspondence from this crazy... It's, yeah, it's, um, it's very frustrating to try and get ahead anywhere. It, there's no one we can complain to about anything. That's why I really love social media, because I can complain to the whole world. And when everyone goes, oh, yeah, you're right, then people start paying attention. 
What, what so if, you had a, if you had a, um, an ability, like if you, you know, put in a position to be able to, say, make three big changes to any kind of, whether it's infrastructure or, or general kind of barrier that you see, um, what would be, the, what'd it be on your top of your list, your, your top three things in terms of uh, a significant change to, to make uh, things you know, better, for, certainly for where you are, for where you sit, your perspective, but also uh, just generally for agriculture, what, what are the big kind of things that are weighing down on it? I think agriculture needs the ability to have like um, 150, 200% tax write-offs against infrastructure, especially water infrastructure and carry that forward. Um, you know, people say, oh yeah, use your farm management deposits. Well, that only works if you've made money in the past 10 years. And when you've been in drought, we're heading into our fifth year now. So when you've been in drought for five years, it's really, really hard to make money. Yeah. You need to be able to carry that forward against the good times as well, because if you can do that, you're going to spend the money. You are going to invest in infrastructure yourself because it's worth it. Um, that, that would be a huge thing. Um, I'll touch on it briefly. You might want to get someone else in to talk about it later, but the mess that is the representation of producers um, and MLA and RMAC and, and levies, like the levy situation in Australia, not just with red meat across a lot of different industries is just, it's a nightmare. And, you know, producers now are a lot more savvy than they were 20 odd years ago. We've got some really bright people in the industry who this is their business. You know, this is their, their bread and butter is, is marketing and analytics and, and that sort of stuff. And they want to have more of a say in what our peak, bodies and R&D organisations are doing. And, and at the moment, they can't do that because the way the levy system and everything is structured. That's that's holding the red meat industry back um, and probably dairy. They're getting there. I can't say a lot about dairy. I only know dairy farmers. I don't actually dairy farm myself. Although I am getting into growing barley and loosen. So that's exciting. <laughs> um, and the third thing is we have to improve education both ways like educate our consumers about who we are and what we do and change the perception a friend of mine did a great book called what does a farmer look like and she oh, yeah. highlighted the lot of different people that are involved in agriculture and and how they don't all look like like me i guess because i'm still very traditional in the look like yes i'm a woman but that's not unusual these days but i still wear the western shirts and jeans and stuff but there's a lot of different people involved in ag out there these days and from all different backgrounds take yourselves for example now you're you know you're involved in pig production and you know not being from an ag background that's great embrace it more of it we need more people getting involved in that sort of stuff it's a good industry um and educating the rural community about the people who live in cities and what they expect and what they want, because you know there's still a very there's a lot of people that oh we can't be can't be listening to them greeny tree hugging city dwelling latte sipping <laughs> lunatics in there. They don't know what they're on about. But yeah, <laughs> I, I, I always find it funny that comment those bloody those latte slipping metros. Because every time I've gone to a farmer's house, they've had the most expensive coffee machine I've ever seen. Literally every time. And I, and I remember going into, and maybe maybe some of the older older guys, it's 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 sort of the, the instant coffee. But a lot of times, anyone who's under probably 50, especially in Victoria, they've all got the fanciest coffee machines. And I think, and you guys are calling them the laddie sipping. <laughs> you know? 
Yeah, and, and that's that's the sort of thing we need to get across because we've got a lot more in common with our city counterparts than we'd probably like to admit. Um, and, you know, if we can just, like, prove to them, I guess, or demonstrate to them that we're not chopping down all the trees and running over all the furry animals. Because we've, we've, we've already, and we've already done it. We don't have to cut them down anymore. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I shouldn't say that. We, we're, we're a sustainable industry. Uh, we are a very sustainable industry, yep. Yeah. Uh, but uh, but no, I think and I like I obviously I'm I'm from rural Scotland, so it's a bit different from rural Australia. As opposed to where you are, Julian, it rains oh, all the time there in Scotland. <laughs> we we've got an issue with too much rain. Uh, <laughs> and and I was from people in the city would consider me to be about as rural as you. Uh, yet I had a town of thirty five thousand people next door. Uh, but it was all relative. But I do think, and that's, and I think it's right what you're saying is the education of, of people in, in the city. But it, I think it works both ways as well. I don't think we should assume, and I've seen it a lot, the assumption that everybody in the city is affluent. Like I would say overwhelmingly, there's probably more people living and working in the city who are pretty, well, they definitely haven't, I would have said this six months ago, but especially now, having a very tough time and won't have the same assets as, as the average farmer. And we, we can't assume the same community around them, Andrew, yeah. too, you know, no, you go, and, and we can't assume that they're all, you know, from, from uh, Fitzroy and having, you know, soda buns or whatever they are, you know, it's, there's plenty of people out there that are, are struggling in the city as well. So. And, and, there are plenty of people struggling and that's that's one of the things that's always found when um i guess mla does any sort of market research they're like oh well our consumers have uh, you know consumers have told us they want pain-free animal management they want you know hormone free this sort of, but none of that is reflected in the data when you get to the supermarket the only thing that matters is price yep and I think we need to give the, our consumers the, the confidence that even if they're buying a low price product, which is getting harder to find these days, given tight supply and that sort of thing, especially in meat, that their meat is hormone free, their meat is produced to a very high standard. And that's what some of our producers don't understand is that they think they can just do what they want and it doesn't matter, but it does, it does matter to us personally. And it matters as an industry that, do, just because you don't have to do the right thing doesn't mean you shouldn't. Yep. Like you can still be a jackaroo and, and, you know, carry on however and probably still sell your cattle and get a decent price for them. But if there's a better way we should do it, we owe that to our consumers to to give them that product at a reasonable price. And that's where processes have a role to play in um, making sure the price is distributed evenly across the product chain. Because, you know, we've got a good product. People should be able to enjoy it. And, you know, if you're struggling in the city and you're um, looking for a better life, move to a regional area, make friends with a farmer, and you could probably get as much free meat as you wanted if you're prepared to get out and dig a few holes or, yep. you know, crack a few, and pick up a few sheep while they're crutching or anything. It's, it's, regional communities are great. Get out there. Well, that, and that's an opportunity. That's an opportunity now as well with, uh, with the... Um, reduced employment opportunities and particularly for younger younger people now coming out of uni or you know those that have taken a gap year or whatever that um you know we're, we're not going to get the uh, level of certainly not going to get the level of backpacker 
type labour in to support some of those areas that, that need it through harvest or through you know certain seasonal times of the year. But um, right now, at this point in time, there's probably a, a natural fit for some of these people to get out and experience what it's like to be in a regional setting and get some of that kind of work done. Uh, and they might find that they, um, that they, don't, they don't go back. It would be great if, if you know, producers and, and farmers could encourage those people to come out into the regional centres and, and you know, there's a lot of, well, not a lot of, but there's some really dodgy operators in the industry, especially horticulture, who take advantage of their workers. Like, we, we've always had the belief that if people are willing to come and live and work out here and, and go without a lot of stuff, then at least you can give them as, as a decent place to, to sleep, good internet, you know, as good as what we get. Um, and you know, plenty of good food, but uh, a lot of people don't believe the same sort of thing because maybe workers were more plentiful. We're grateful for anyone who turns up. We don't care. <laughs> we'll find a job for someone somewhere. Um, you know, be a bit more welcoming, be a bit more supportive of those who might be just entering agriculture for the first time. I've picked fruit. It's a shit job. You know, if you can pick fruit all day, you're a hero. You're a champion because it's hard work. And you know, I'd rather fence all day in 45 degrees than pick fruit. It's a, yeah, if you can do that, then that is great. Get out there, have a go. If someone comes to me and says, I'm looking for a job, all I've got is fruit picking experience. I'll be like, great, at least I know you can work. Yeah, you because can work it hard. is really hard. <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's very frustrating. People think that they, if they move to regional areas, they, them and their kids won't have the same sort of opportunities. But it's, it's not true. My cousin played um, representative level rugby league. He played internationally. Um, you know, played in the NRL. He was from a cattle station outside a small town called Richmond in northwest Queensland. And he made it to the very top of his game. Look at all the AFL players that are from sheep farms and, and grain farms and those uh, sorts of uh, things. The opportunity is there. Matt, Matt, and the just, whole community gets behind you. Matt, just so you know, AFL is Australian Rules Football because I know you don't follow Australian <laughs> sports because you follow soccer. But, the, but, there are, but it is known that it's quite a lot of Australian Rules footballers from the country <laughs> areas like I'll, I'll name a few just now, like Nat Fife is, is, is one of those, and he was from Lake Grace, and there's quite I've a few in Lake I've Grace. Interviewed, I've interviewed Nat's dad, actually, as part of the live sheep export report, so I know the Fife's very well. So I'm, so I'm, just, I'm, I'm just giving you some, some help, because you're not that Australian compared to me. Well, <laughs> <laughs> thanks for the, the heads-up, uh, mate, but I'll, I'll beg to differ that um, proper football um, with the round ball is actually also an Australian sport. We're, you know, we can... We can do more than one sport, Andrew, I think, and, yeah. uh, and we can do it well. Anyway, so, but I think you're right, Gillian. Uh, I think the opportunities are there. The opportunities are just different. There's no denying that. You, you can't go down to the, uh, the, the, uh, the, the farmer's market or whatnot or, or do those type of things. But the other opportunities are abundant, you know, fresh air. Like the scenery is amazing. And, and I think... Even from my point of view, I've got a young family. I would much rather raise them in a place where they've got a garden, even if it's just a small garden, versus, you know, like you said before, a tiny little cubicle in a, in a big building, especially now when you can't even leave your house in a lot of cities. So, like it is, it's, it's, but I don't, I think the one thing is we can't sugarcoat it that if you've been raised in a city all your life, coming out to even even coming out to somewhere like Swan Hill or 
or Horsham would be a big a big change of, of, of culture and circumstance. And and yeah, I think it is. But after six months or so, you kinda of get used to it. I think there's I think there's probably a great opportunity once all this lockdown business and stuff goes away, you could really build um, relationships between urban and rural areas. Like my kids, for example, they don't know how to catch a bus or a train. They don't do public transport. Like, so if they're going to go to the city for university, they're going to be completely out of their depth. Um, and, you know, urban kids don't know how to collect eggs from chickens or dig a hole or use a shovel properly. Like, I think there's a really good possibility there for for doing like exchange like we don't have to do overseas exchange programs anymore let's bring city kids to the bush and send bush kids to the city and and let them spend a holidays there and and learn about the differences and and let them make their own choices about where they'd like to live but i I wonder if you know i used to travel back to the uk once every year and a half or so just to see family and whatnot and i'm probably not going to to do that for next two two and a bit years but I, I just wonder if there's a lot of people in Australia who tend to, you know, up sticks and go overseas for four weeks or whatever once a year. And clearly no one's going to be able to afford to do that because no one can do that 14-day isolation when you come back. But I wonder if that will lead to more people coming, going into rural areas for, for that sort of camping holiday or, you know, caravanning or whatever else it is. But the more time they spend in those areas, whether it's going into the, you know, local rest, local pubs or, or just seeing the countryside, maybe that's a simple way of it starting to be that, that gap sort of being, uh, being removed a little bit. I think so. And I think with, given the fact that all across Australia and a lot of rural communities, there's a lot of vacant houses and everywhere. So maybe like if you're a bit of a, you know, crafty investor you can get in there and have airbnbs because once you stay somewhere for four weeks and the people down the shop call you by your name and ask you to hear for your paper and, and that sort of thing you, know, you can start thinking to yourself like you know i could live here this is a really nice little community and those like because there's one thing about getting in your caravan and spending a, a weekend at a caravan park or spending a week somewhere else that you don't sort of you need to immerse yourself in the community you need to go to local community events um you know and that that only comes with with time, and you know if people could do that, that would be a great boost to rural communities who are struggling from fire, drought, flood, the tourism down down flow, whatever you want to call it. Use your analyst words. I don't know; it's all too complicated down, down, for me. Downturn. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> the one. But 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 I think there is a downturn just now, and that's basically because things are closed down. But I think. Yeah. The tourist industry, and I'm not a tourist analyst by any stretch of the imagination, I think next year, or probably from, from spring onwards, they're going to rebound pretty quickly and pretty strongly. Okay, they're not going to get the overseas, the Chinese travelers or the Japanese travelers or the Europeans, but you're going to have 22 million Australians who are who are going to be traveling, whether it's even to Lorne or... or, or you know, uh, handoff or, or, or anywhere else. That was one of the reports, Andrew, that came out, I think just last week when they were looking at inbound and outbound tourism. I think it was something like the um, Australians that go overseas. So I think it was the numbers off the top of my head was like 34 billion is spent annually. Um, but the, uh, the um, 
money that's coming inbound from overseas tourists is around 20 billion a year annually. See, so, and I was just making it up on the spot, and I was right. Oh, no. There you go. So, yeah, I mean, <laughs> even if some of that money is diverted instead of us all going overseas, uh, and it may be because we can't, um, then, uh, you know, it could be the case that, uh, that even if some of it's spent, then you're going to get that benefit to the, um, you know, to the, uh, to the local economies around whether it's, you know, um, within a different state or within regional settings, um, you know, that's, uh, that's certainly something that, that could work, you know. So, yeah. So I think that's probably it, really. Anything else to add, Gillian, or any, any? No, I've got nothing to add. If your listeners are really interested, they can follow me on Twitter if they like, at StationMum101. Um, but yeah, other than that, thanks for having me on, guys. I've really appreciated it. Um, always happy to come on and have a bit of a rant and uh, report on things from the central of Australia in case you anyone our, uh, wonders you, you, you what we're our, missing out on. You, you could be our <laughs> central Australian <laughs> correspondent. correspondent yeah. <laughs> we're looking for a few correspondents, so we might take up on that. And uh, unfor- yeah. unfortunately, I don't have a gift to give you because I remember <laughs> when uh, this time. But I remember no, that. that's right. I've got that recipe for that horrendous sugar concoction that almost killed me. So um, that's enough thing. <laughs> but but I remember um, I remember presenting for grain producers, and uh, and and receiving one of the best gifts you could ever give a Scotsman from Gillian, and that was a can of Iron Brew, and and some Jaffa cakes. <laughs> so. There is a gift, Andrew. We can give Gillian. She can listen to the outtake music we're about to play because. Um, <laughs> She just said it before we before we started recording. She said how much she enjoyed the music uh, in and out. We've had a few um, a few varied uh, responses to the music, Julian. But um, that could be our gift to her if we just uh, get the music. Before, or, 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 yeah, you know, just, just give I, me I, that on a loop, and I'll just play it continuously because I love it so much. I'll, I'll send it on a CD for you. <laughs> oh, excellent. <laughs> right. Oh, thanks very much for listening, people. And uh, yeah, thanks for coming along, Julian. Thanks, mate. Thank you.